Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Krug. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week, we're reporting from the New York Film Festival. One of our most anticipated films in the lineup was Souvenir Part 2. Joanna Hogg's follow-up to her remarkable 2018 coming-of-age drama, The Souvenir. Following Honor Swinton Burns' Julie, a film student, in the aftermath of her boyfriend's death by overdose, Hogg deepens the first film's exploration of the boundaries between art and life with tender reflection, wry humor, and some dazzling moments of meta-autofiction. We caught up with Joanna while she was in New York for the festival, while Honor joined the conversation from Edinburgh via Zoom. Our lively chat touched upon the film's layered approach to autobiography, its precisely contrived naturalism, and how the film's soundtrack draws from Hogg's memories of youth. Also, if you're in New York, don't miss this weekend's Film Comment Live Talk at the New York Film Festival. We'll be chatting with Todd Haynes, Ed Lockman, and Amy Taubin about two films in this year's lineup, The Velvet Underground and Songs for Drella, that take us back to the heyday of the 60s New York avant-garde. Tickets are free. Go to filmlink.org slash NYFF2021 for all the details. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Honor. We're so thrilled to have you today on the Film Comment podcast. Congratulations on the premiere of The Souvenir Part 2 at the festival. It's already been a great success and, you know, Clint and I both loved it. So we're very grateful for this opportunity to talk to you about the film. Thank you. And Honor, thank you for joining us all the way from Edinburgh, right? Is that correct? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. No problem. Easy. Of course. And Joanna, you are in New York, is that correct? I am. I am. Yeah, very sad to not be with Honor. Feels really weird. How has the festival been so far for you, Joanna? It's been good, but a little lonely. Yeah. (laughs) Without Honor. Strange standing up on the stage, introducing the film and doing the Q&A on my own. And I wish I could see other films while I'm here. But obviously, I'm only here for, uh, well, I leave tomorrow morning, actually. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Well, it's it's interesting that you say that you wish that uh, you guys could both be on stage together to talk about the film, because these two films seem to be kind of, in some ways, a collaboration in the creation of this character, Julie. Such a vivid character and very layered, as Jevnik and I were discussing earlier. There's kind of a Hollywood version of this movie that might paint Julie as sort of a a victim, a talent whose vision is kind of misunderstood, especially in the scene where she's pitching her film to the all-male professors and they're kind of dismissing her ideas. But I think that you you managed to present this character with a lot of humor and, and candor as somebody who's kind of confused and not entirely competent figuring things out, but also very resolved and focused in other in other respects. And I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about how you developed this character through the course of the first film and maybe how those conversations shifted when you started working on this part two. Well, on the first one, I remember we had, I think we were we settled on on me being Julie about three weeks before we started shooting is that right, Joanna? It was about three weeks, I think. Even less, actually. Even less. Maybe it was about a couple of weeks or a week or something. And so we had that time, I think used that time quite practically, to look at handwritten letters written by Joanna 
at the time and we looked at some photographs and I watched some films, I did my homework and watched some of your favourite films from that time and we, I read some diaries. And, and, and which films though, which, which were Joanna's favourite films from that time? Oh, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I feel like Powell and Pressburger films. Joanna, you said them early and I was trying to remember. It's awful. I'm embarrassing myself now. I can't remember them. It's hard to remember because you. I think I threw a lot of things at you to watch. So yes, there was Power and Pressburger. Of course, there was The Red Shoes. There were Hollywood musicals that I was obsessed with at the time, like Cover Girl and Lady in the Dark. But also, I can't remember if I showed you all that jazz. Yes, you did. That was one of the first ones. Yeah. 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 So a lot of a lot of films that I was obsessed with at that time did you say new york new york too i did yes yes so i was interested even at that time in the early 80s in in films that drew from the the hollywood golden period of musicals and and so new york new york and all that jazz made in the same year in fact but very different films but both of them were very influential for me at that time and are now in fact so I just wanted to ask a little more about how things change in the gap between the two films, because we know you were already writing the second part when the first released, but did you kind of go back and make any changes? Did the reception of the first change how you, how you viewed this character and this world? I feel I didn't massively sort of look into or pay a big amount of attention to how the first one was received. Because I just felt so confident with what Joanna and I were doing that it just, we were what we both needed, I feel like. We had our vision and, and that was our drive. Nothing else really mattered that much. But, but the, yeah, there was a, relux, a reluctance to stop. So having uh, made shot part one, I didn't want to down tools in any kind of way. I was scared to because I thought, well, we'll lose the thread of what we're doing. And it takes so long to build up momentum when you're making a film. There's so much preparation and once you get going, you really don't want to stop. So I certainly didn't want to stop and have to reflect back on what we'd done because we were only halfway through. So I, I, I tried to keep a distance from the reaction to part one, but of course it's impossible to completely um, keep away from that, or keep away from the noise, whether good or, you know, good or bad. Was part two completely mapped out then before you shot part one or were, were you developing? Because the whole the film becomes much more in part two about this play between art and life and what's real and what's not real. I, I'm just wondering how, uh, how much you had planned out this entire trajectory ahead of part one or if there was some amount of finding your way into these ideas as you were working on the project. Well, it was entirely mapped out. Um, because the plan was to shoot both films back to back and that didn't work out uh, for financial reasons really but uh, but having been mapped out at that early stage I then made the decision and Honor was always in this conversation with me to to not um, actually look back at the original map but just to keep moving forward and to take taken what we'd learned from making part one into part two and also the observations of making part one, both, yeah. So in the sense of Julie, Julie is a particular way in part one. And then I obviously uh, was watching how Honor 
interpreted Julie and what Honor had her own desires to do with that character, which was very much um, break out of the, 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 the straitjacket of, of this very introverted person and, and, and to express herself. And so that, that drive I saw in Honor or that desire uh, to to express herself more definitely um, I definitely took that into um, the approach to her character in part two and the idea of um, making work making art and, and and life experience that I guess that was always part of that was always the the sort of geography of the story um, but yeah so many things changed in that year when we weren't you know, when we were in a sense promoting part one, you know, so many things changed in terms of ideas and honor, you had time to think about what you'd been doing and what we were going to go on to do and had your own experiences. You know, this new film is very much about honors character, Julie processing her grief and the process of using art to process grief and how memorializing something can externalize this kind of very internal, intimate experience. But it's also about sort of like filmmaking as a student in the 1980s in Britain, like it opens up in that way. And I think, you know, Richard Ayode's character is an absolute scene stealer, but he also feels like some there's something very ironic about him because to my understanding, there wasn't necessarily a black filmmaker like that in 80s uh, British film who was just this with this unimpeachable confidence and, you know, bravado. And I thought that was just so funny to kind of uh, fabricate this character who's almost like a counterpoint to Julie in both of... And it's almost like you could have another film about that character and what took him to get here, even though we don't take that path. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, coming up, like expanding on his character in this film? I want to see that film. I want to see that film about his uprising. But it's true that, that his character isn't modeled on anyone in particular. But we, we did have fun exploring the 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 arrogant side of a of a filmmaker. And in the 80s, a particular well, arrogance, which actually I myself had as a student, I really thought that I could be the next Steven Spielberg. I mean, some the that kind of somebody with, you know, making huge, uh, uh, big budgeted films and being very much the vision of one person. And so that arrogance definitely felt at film school. And then we looked around at other filmmakers with that, with that veneer of confidence, because it doesn't, it is a veneer in a way. And that, that uh, performance, the, the sort of the, the director as a performer. So yeah, it was, a, it was a, it was a great journey. And uh, I always knew where, in a general sense, that character of Patrick was going to go. But then the specifics, a lot of those came about um, working with Richard. I love the film, too, that these dock workers dancing to wire and like fighting each other like <laughs> in this sort of 30s <laughs> musical. Yeah, that track came about uh, when we were um, sound mixing. We actually, we actually shot it to a different track, which we use it where you have, you see it or you hear it earlier in the film. Uh, um, the the um, Mick Ronson's version of Slaughter on Tenth, and then and then myself and my sound designer were just thinking oh, maybe we need to make it a bit more punky and and uh, a bit more 
sort of alternative and it's like this totally different world just like clashing at the images of like these kind of traditional hollywood kind of dock workers like a you know west side story type of situation yeah it's really it's really a great contrast yeah it seemed very patrick anyway that idea yeah definitely and i kind of wanted to return to something that clint was saying at the beginning I absolutely love that transition from Julie pitching her project to a room full of old white male professors who are just so rigid in their idea of what cinema should be. And she and her producer, right? And they're so, I mean, they, they're they just like, we're going to go make this. You just don't get us. And then you go to the set and Julie actually is quite confused and no one knows what's happening. I thought that was a very kind of nuanced switch where, I don't know, nothing is ever black and white in these films, you know? And so, yes, the professors are kind of old-fashioned, but maybe they have a point and Julie's confidence is going to take her places, but maybe she has some learning to do. I just love that layering. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Well, as you're saying that, uh, I'm 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 thinking actually my my uh, you're so right. Anyway, nothing is of uh, ever black and white. And I, when I was making part one and part two, I think I still had a rather black and white view of my time at film school, or rather a very critical view, and that somehow I I you know was just you know a kind of you know, a rebel against the system and they didn't understand me and you know they did a lot of damage ultimately and and now already and it's only a matter of months really barely years uh, later I, I you know realize it's so much more nuanced than that and they 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 probably did have a point it's taken me a long time to have right <laughs> to uh, uh, uh or yeah the sort of knowledge to admit that but I I uh yeah, I think Julie, uh, when she's shooting her film, you know, she, yeah, she, of course, is learning. You know, doesn't um, uh, doesn't know everything yet. So, so they, yeah, they, they're they're not they're not uh, through and through baddies in a way. Yeah, of course, and I think Honor does a great job throughout of uh, like we were saying earlier, kind of that presenting those fluctuations between this vulnerability and this uh, arrogance, as you called it, or resolve just uh, self-confidence and you can kind of see that flash across face on her throughout. It's, it's really a remarkable performance related to the performance though. We were also thinking a lot of, I was talking about the dialogue is so organic and it's kind of, again, fluctuates. There are moments where you can, where I feel like it's very clearly carefully orchestrated, carefully written. And there's some other moments where things feel maybe a little bit more improvised. And uh, we kind of wanted to know, how you guys approached the dialogue for this film. And I mean, clearly, I think that it's very clearly, very carefully written. I, there's one moment in particular when, when Julie walks into the set and you hear overhear somebody say something about a wall, I think, and they say something like the wall was, but the wall is, is no longer. And I think I just remember hearing that. And then later on, you have this scene of her watching the Berlin Wall, and they say something that's almost exactly the same. There are these echoes. I wonder how you guys approached creating the dialogue for this film. To respond to what you've just said, and, and when she's walking around her set, what she hear, hears, in fact, is Anthony saying that. Oh. It's, it's a moment from part one. That, that changes it a lot, too. The idea was that Julie's walking around the set of her film, a bit like myself, and of course, you know, she's remembering her time in her actual apartment with Anthony. And it was 
very like my experience of the set being built, which was based on a flat that I had in the 80s and walking around for the first time. I had, you know, I heard things in, you know, I, I remembered things that had happened at the time. So anyway, I, I think that's a little diversion from your question, but um, it was, the, 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 yeah, those moments are very particular. And yet the dialogue often comes out of just, you know, putting on her and the other actors or whoever she's collaborating with in the scene together, and 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 that get that gets built. So it is improvised a lot of it in many ways, and but then sometimes there are very specific lines that need to be said to tell that story. So it's it's yeah. It, Anna, you maybe you can do a better job at describing uh, how it works because it's it's so particular because it's not. We're, we're, it's not improvising in that, I always think improvising means you haven't got a plan. We've got a plan, a very particular, precise plan. And I don't want that feeling of improvisation, but, but the, my actors are so clever, Anna particularly, at writing in a sense, or, or, or creating the words uh, in, in a particular moment. And it's come out of an atmosphere that we've built up on the set and a trust and it's many things that one can't put words to. It's, it's all credit to you, the way it turned out. I feel like it's so funny. I think you said to me once that if we have an end goal, we can go, if we have like a destination, like an X on a map, we can go on any road to get there. But as long as we have that at the end and we reach where we want to go. And I mean, it was such a funny, I always felt so guided when we, when we began a scene, when we began a sort of conquest, whatever it was, whether it's a conversation or just be quiet in a room by myself. It felt so, felt so controlled, not controlled. It felt so sort of as it should be. There wasn't any sort of, I didn't really feel any confusion or, or that we were on different pages. Again, we, we were on such, we had this completely unspoken understanding of each other, I feel. So it just, it was so organic the way it turned out. So natural. So yeah, it wasn't exactly improvised. It's funny. It was. It had such a design that it was such an elegant dance to get there. But it was so. It was wonderful for me to have that freedom to experiment and try something the first take, and then you would be like, okay, maybe let's try it another way. This was great. Let's do that again. Maybe we we say this in another way. But it was just, just wonderful. But what you're not saying, which is hard for you to say yourself, obviously, is how incredibly intuitive you are and how how skilled as a performer. Honor hasn't trained as an actor, but you 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 have an ability. You 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 got inside that character, and your reactions were all they all they were they they were how to put it they were everything that you did was relevant somehow or sort of connected to the story. So you. Yeah, you just, it was just all from, from within in an incredible way that continually, um, continually surprised and impressed me. I think that that happened because of us, because of the conversations that we would have and the safety that I felt is that I do, I, it did come naturally to me. It felt very, again, I'm saying organic. It felt very natural and organic to me. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. 
Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. There's this great line that Tilda Swinton has where Julie asks her about smoking. And she says, uh, asks if uh, the dad knows that she smokes. And Tilda Swinton says, daddy pretends he doesn't know anything about it, like a truly loving person. And this just struck me as like very particular to this person's class and like position in the world where this kind of attitude, like, like this is a form of loving, pretending that you don't know something bad about somebody that you love. I think there's something there and about the the way that the film portrays more broadly this kind of class dynamic or or maybe even generational dynamic between the art art school world and the world of Julie's home life with her parents. And I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about how you kind of thought about these two different worlds come bumping into each other. Sure, we talked about it that much. Yeah, I don't remember. But uh, particularly, this could just be like an outsider, an American being like, you know, an kind of anthropological viewpoint on British society. Uh, we we felt that there was something very British also about that uh, depiction of that home life. And again, you know, making some generalizations, please correct <laughs> us if we're wrong. But this British sense of reserve that did seem connected to where Julie comes from and then how that then relates to her relationship with art, this like externalization that she's trying to do with the movie. And her mother's relationship with art and that that ceramic <laughs> pot that she creates. I think that's such a great detail. And this, I mean, I think that, you know, these, and it's, we're, we're getting away from any kind of question here because I think these films just sort of do, do this. They're just like open to endless interpretation <laughs> but anyway I find it hard to explain in a way because oh, this is just so is a is a sort of feeling it's so innate I mean it's not uh yeah it's it, it's not even necessarily conscious you know are these are these biographical details or are these things that grow out of the fiction that kind of comes out of the autobiography both yeah so so there's what honor you know, Tilda and the other actors are bringing to it. And then there's, yeah, what one brings oneself. Yeah, I'm aware of, you know, cultural differences and, and you know, one hopes that uh, there'll be, the, the humour will translate. And, you know, I find one of the most uh, satisfying things is um, when I hear people laughing at the films or with the films, whether laughing at it or with it. Um, but it's, the, the humour is so important, but except that, you know, we're not we're not looking for the funny line, and maybe that's what's more interesting. You're not looking, and you know, we're not making a comedy, but at the same time, we all had a sense of humor when we were making the films. Well, I was going to say that I think Kalinda was one of the first things you said, and you said the humor, like Julie's humor, and I that's one of the the kindest things I think I've ever heard anyone comment on the character as sense of humor because. I like to think that she has one and it's it's this is something I really love about the second part is there really is this very light sense of humor about it this sort of really delicate 
it's it's so sweet and it's something that I'm really glad that you saw you saw in that because I think but I feel exactly the same Joanna I love when people laugh at it or come out and go I feel so so it's so I feel light I feel elated by that it's really lovely I think that but you're right it's not a yeah that's thing we're not making a comedy and it's not meant to be sort of even laugh out loud funny but just it's so nice I really like that people spot that little easter egg I think the Richard Ayode character has some laugh out loud lines <laughs> for sure I, yeah <laughs> you definitely laughing in, you see me laughing in like a few scenes there's one where I'm like well, the one, what was the line where they where he says, uh, and he might be drunk or something. Maybe he's drunk too. Like, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. Somebody not, there's a cutaway in there. When he goes, Could we have some more people around the monitor, please? I, yeah. I was like, oh. he was just, he's just a proper comedian. Oh, well, yeah. Right. Yeah. Of course. I think also that this like warm sense of humor comes from this mix of sincerity and parody. There is, I think, Joanna, maybe you looking at, your younger days and there's a little bit of you know look I was a bit foolish but I was you know there was also very something something very sincere about Julie and and the regard she has for her work and and her community really and I think of course all that culminates in that wonderful sequence where we we watch Julie watch her student film and so Clint and I were actually debating about this before the podcast like are we watching her student film are we watching Julie escape into her student film you know what what are, or is this like a pastiche of student filmmaking are we watching her interpret her student film and these are her like fantasies about or like her kind of yeah dream vision of the film I mean you don't have to answer this question but I think this scene is really fascinating this like series of student film kind of techniques one after the other where did this idea come from (laughs) that's interesting you say it like that it it, uh um well it came partly from a student my own student film my graduation film from film school so it was loosely based on that but it was also i wanted julie which is something i didn't do to examine her response to Anthony's death within her short film so it's it's her it's a sort of expression of her grief in a way but I yeah I don't want to answer what it is except that I see it not as we it's not the film we see her shooting me she's in it and Anthony's in it so so I was right Devika it's (laughs) it's a dream in a way Got it. <laughs> All right, that'll that'll do it for us. I think I, I <laughs> No, no, that I, was I won this round. I won the I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but I do I do have a question about the dream. Why does Julie and this is a spoil kind of a spoiler, so just a warning to listeners, you should probably wait till you see the film before you uh listen ahead. But why does Julie shoot Anthony with her camera? I mean, that was so interesting when she points the camera at him and he falls as if he's shot. And it was a very fascinating moment of maybe her coming to terms with her grief and what it means to maybe commit this person, commit this memory to film. Do you want to explain that, Joanna? You you can refuse to if you if you don't. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's irresistible to say something. I mean, I don't think it's uh, a, a literal thing that she's doing. But maybe on some level, in making this film partly about this character that I knew in real life, that I was that I was killing him in a sense, even though 
he is already gone, but there was some kind of murder that maybe uh, was committed and maybe when he was alive too, something, there was there's something in there, get some guilt. Um, I, I think it's quite complicated. Um, uh, but it's it, it, within the context of the, of, uh, the film within a film, it's, um, yeah, it's something symbolic, metaphorical. It's not, yeah, it's not a literal thing. She's, she's, she's a filmmaker and she's expressing her ideas and uh, living her life and, and some people fall by the wayside. It's so easy to forget that this is so autobiographical for you. So in some ways, it's really working backwards. And, and I can imagine how difficult it is to be like, well, I'd made this decision because of this. But also, just as Julie says in the film, like it happened that way. You make decisions because this is how it, I think she says when she's talking with her actors, like this actually is the way that, that things happen. There's a lot of great music from the era, but I think that I really loved the uh, book ending of the film with the Nico song, 6040. And, and I, then also that cut from the field to the urban environment at the beginning where the song just ends abruptly. I just wanted to ask about the use of that that song in particular. I know, you know, it reminded me, maybe I'm just like free associating, but it reminded me of the, uh, I can no longer hear the guitar, the the Philippe Carrel film that is supposedly like a, a document of, or a, a recreation of his relationship with Nico and their experience as junkies. So I think there's some connections there, but can you talk a little bit about the choice of, of that song in particular? That song, yes. Well, it was, um, I had, there were some songs that I wrote into the script um, that I knew I would have in there. And that one I hadn't, although it was a song that I knew uh, from a very long time ago, from my you know, late teens probably. So it has a lot of associations for me. And as you say, there's the connection with the, with heroin but there's uh um well I just love that song and and it wasn't an easy one to uh, get the rights to it was very complicated yeah really complicated and we were actually finalizing the sound mix and we still didn't have the the rights to it and then it's a complicated thing one's got to put the credits in the title and uh yeah it was really touch and go and you uh, you put so much um you know I I was desperate. To, I couldn't think of another track to put there instead of it. It just has such a propulsive. That rhythm is just so so great. So great, and then and then the fact of returning to it, and I feel there's a sort of circularity to the two films in a way. One sort of returning to the beginning right. of the first one, although that track wasn't in in part one. But uh, I can't really say more than that, except very personal resonances with it, and that desperation to have it in the film, and really. Do you feel like if you compiled the the music from the two films, you'd have sort of a uh, art school mixtape from your youth? Uh, very, I remember very much so, which includes um, uh, Bluebeard, Bartok's Bluebeard is very much part of that mixtape. And uh, in fact, the French distributor want to uh, release a vinyl album, the soundtrack of both films. And I... Oh, cool. No way. That's so exciting. I didn't know that. Oh, we're oh. going to put in our orders right away. Just Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my way. That's so exciting. I just want to put it out there because I want to make it happen. Yes. Well, I think we're, uh, you know, near the end of our time. So I just wanted to ask a quick closing question. You know, this film 
is really, as they say, meta or self-reflexive. In particular moments, Joanna, you really show the distance between art and life here very prominently in a way that obviously we don't see in the first film. Can you talk about that decision? I mean, not just I'm not just talking about the filmmaking scenes within the film. Uh, I won't give it away, but you know, there are some crucial moments where you actually step outside of the film that we're watching. And I'm curious, you know, why you decided to do that and also honor if if that changed your experience of the film in any way. Well, I, I mean, all I can say is that in my own life uh, and the souvenirs are part of my life, that uh, I have constantly have this tussle between uh, what I'm making and creating and, and how I live my life and uh, the difficulty sometimes of, of combining the two, except the two are the same thing. So I can't even pull apart in any kind of way what you've just said, because it's so, as you were speaking, I was thinking, well, all my films have this quality in my mind of, of, of sort of art and life in different ways. And I think it's just who I am. And I can't, because I'm still within this story, I can't, I can't step outside and, and, and respond to that because you know, the next thing I'm doing, in fact, I'm finishing a new film already and already thinking of one beyond that. It's going, it, it's, it's, I think it's going to always be part of my work. And I, but I can't, they're not separable. So it's almost a fantasy of separation in the film. Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah, it doesn't feel real to me, actually. And I forget yeah, that's what happens in a funny sense. Yeah, that's one of the great things that the film does, I thought, is it just shows you the endless... You keep thinking you're going to the real, to the real from the from art to the real world, but then the real it shows that the real world is also just continually, endlessly, artifice in some ways. I wanted to ask you both about what you're working on next. I know that Joanna, you just alluded to it, but Honor as well. If you could, if you guys have, uh, if you can legally, <laughs> I feel well. I'm no, I'm studying at the moment, so I'm I'm at university. I, I do psychology. So I'm in oh, third year now. Fascinating. So I'm, yeah. So I'm studying not quite as hard as I should be, but still quite hard. And um, yeah, so I'm concentrating on that, but nothing in the pipeline at the moment. But I want to be the next Bond villain. So we'll see about that. We'll see if that happens. Joanna, what about what you're making? Can you share some details? Are you able to right now? No, no. <laughs> answer. Uh, it's a ghost story and it's very different from my previous films. Um, but I'm still in the middle of, well, with, towards the end of editing it and about to start the sound design. So it's quite intense at the moment. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about that. And then already starting to think of shapes and ideas for, for, for another film beyond that. And But this is the end of the souvenir saga? Part two is the end of the souvenir saga. <laughs> But your life goes on. <laughs> yes, 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 more sagas, exactly, yes. different ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part three is the enters the Bond universe. Oh yeah, in space. <laughs> we see in a, in a in space station. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've taken quite a bit of your time, and thank you for humoring our questions. This was just wonderful to get a peek behind the curtain, behind the many, many curtains of the souvenir films and uh, I I wish you know both films great success the souvenir part two comes out very soon in the United States on October 22nd so if our listeners have not caught it at the New York Film Festival make sure that you keep an eye out for its release and yeah 
Thank you both. Yeah. Thank you both. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. Thank you.